We are blessed this morning to have a guest preacher. It is a great joy to welcome Dr. Ray Rhodes. Ray serves as a founding pastor of Grace Community Church of Dawsonville, Georgia. He's also president of Nourished in the Word Ministries for some 17, 18 years. He has served four congregations over three decades of ministry. He's published several books, including Susie, uh, the book that I recommended earlier. He holds theological degrees from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary with the MDiv and a doctorate of ministry from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's married to Lori. They're blessed to have six daughters and five grandchildren so far. Uh, Ray has published numerous books on family worship, which he shared with us some of that teaching this morning in class, also a book on marriage, and most recently the book Susie. So many of his books are available in our bookstore. We're thankful to have Ray here this morning. Ray, come up and minister to us. Is that it? Here we go. All right. And uh, Autumn and your family, so enjoyed being with you. Even the booby traps in front of my bathroom door last night, the Legos. Uh, <laughs> See, I, I, grew up with all, uh, I grew up with mostly with all sisters during the time I was at my parents' home. And when I went to college, had my first brother. I was already pretty old then. And uh, then the Lord gave me six daughters of my own. And so uh, I'm not used to being in a house with boys. So, but he did give me three. The Lord gave me three grandsons and two granddaughters. My oldest uh, granddaughter is uh, almost uh, just a little bit older, just a little bit younger than my daughter. So we have granddaughter and daughter that they're really good friends and play together, live down the street from one another. So uh, it's great being in a house with some boys and lovely daughters. And uh, they all treated me with great kindness and, and uh, hospitality. So I commend your pastor and his family to you. If you were to come to our church in Dawsonville, if you were there this morning, which uh, it's wrapping up, it's uh, there, you would be, find yourself right at home. It's very similar to your own church and uh, what you do here and uh, what a blessing to have a faithful expositor of the Word of God, just teaching you God's Word verse by verse, and God-centered music and lyrics. Uh, love the music that was chosen this morning, so uh, thank you, brother, for that. And the ladies, uh, what a sweet fellowship we had with the ladies yesterday. I think we had uh, close to 50 ladies that showed up uh, from our, the church here and from other churches, and that was a sweet day. I enjoyed being here, and uh, what a, just an encouraging weekend. So I go home with good thoughts of you. And I won't slander you too poorly on social media or anything. I'll, uh, <laughs> no, only good words and encouragement as I uh, go back to my family this afternoon. God willing, uh, from uh, San Antonio to Atlanta. We're going to look this morning uh, at one verse. Uh, typically, I'm preaching uh, verse by verse like uh, your pastor and, and uh, going through books of the Bible. And as I do that, sometimes I'll also occasionally single out a verse <clears throat> to give some extra attention to, and, and uh, I think that's uh, helpful on occasion, and that's what I want to do this morning with verse 13 of 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 10. I was thinking of the hymn before I came up here, Are You Weary? Are You Heavy Laden? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. So... I know every time I address my own congregation, and I know what I address congregations on the road, that uh, some, maybe many in some cases within the congregation, are weary and are heavy laden with burdens and trials and difficulties. It is the common, it is the common lot of all of us, right? At some level, life is difficult, life is hard. 
And apart from the grace of Christ, we, are in, we would be in despair. This verse is a comforting verse to me and encouraging, and I pray it will be to you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not allow you, or He will not let you, be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Lord, again, we bow before you. We thank you that the Word of God is cleansing. It is uh, heart rejoicing. It takes uh, us to the place of wisdom and salvation. It displays for us the glory of God and the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your Word. And Lord, we uh, are bombarded with messages from everywhere, television, the internet, social media, text, email, instant messaging, Snapchat, Instagram messages. Uh, every day my own life I know that I'm getting messages from people in every sort of format. And it can be overwhelming at times, just the amount of that kind of communication And Lord, it's easy to just be slow to hear and quick to speak. We want to be quick to hear this morning. Your authoritative voice amidst all of the voices in our world uh, that are shouting at us, that may be whispering to us, and help us to hear your word and your voice today. Lord, thank you for this church where the word of God is honored where Christ is exalted, where the folks come under sound teaching. We pray today, O Lord, that you would take your word and help us to see the beauty of Jesus and the glory of the gospel, the wisdom of God, and your letter to the Corinthian church. Help me, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The Corinthian church is a church that had a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And yet Paul was uh, very patient and kind with them and called them his brothers. And he had to warn them, he had to correct them, he had to instruct them. And uh, he had to encourage them. And he does so with this verse, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be too able to endure it. So what I want to do this morning, sort of in line with uh, one of the reasons that I came this weekend was to uh, learn how to lean on Jesus by looking at a historical example. As I told the Sunday school class that uh, we were, were not here to exalt uh, Charles Spurgeon or Susanna Spurgeon or anyone else, but to learn from them as the scripture instructs us to do. We're to honor those who've run the race before us. We're to remember those who've been faithful to the word of God. And I hope that you are a diligent reader, first of all, of Scripture, knowing your hymn book, as we mentioned as well this morning, but also that you read Christian history and good biographies. Uh, there's always something to learn from someone's life as they followed Christ. So as Paul says, you know, imitate me as I follow Jesus, and that's helpful to us. So in this sermon, I'm going to open up with some examples 
uh, from some challenges that Charles Spurgeon faced. Then we're going to go uh, look at the text a little bit more in depth, and then we're going to conclu- close with some application from Spurgeon's life. Some of these things I'm going to share with you may be a bit surprising if you know anything about Spurgeon. Maybe you've imagined him to be uh, this lo- the larger-than-life figure, and he was that in more ways than one. He was a tremendous thinker, a powerful preacher. Uh, thousands every week came to hear him preach. Sometimes he would preach uh, 12 times a week, especially in his early ministry. Uh, they could not build a building that could hold all the people that wanted to hear him. Uh, he, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, one time preached uh, to 12,000 people, around 12,000 people in a music hall, and a disaster occurred as someone cried fire when there was no fire, and, and uh, seven people were trampled to death. And it so impacted Spurgeon that he never got over it for all of his life. It, ha- it left a lasting mark on him. Though he served God joyfully and faithfully for the remainder of his life, there was a season in which he imagined he would be out of the ministry, that he might die himself. Uh, he preached to 24,000 people one time in, a, in the Crystal Palace. Uh, uh, they would fill up buildings and have to lock the doors to keep people from rushing inside. Uh, on one occasion, folks outside banging on the walls trying to get in, and they had to bring police to, to make order everywhere he went. And he became a pastor in London uh, at 19 years of age. What were you doing at 19? He actually became a pastor, first of all, at 16 years of age in a small village church north of Cambridge. And uh, what, were you, what were you doing at 16 years old? I, well, I wasn't pastoring a church, and I shouldn't have been pastoring a church at 16, but Spurgeon, God raised him up and uniquely gifted him and allowed him to do that. And that little church went from 40 people to 400 people during his just over two-year ministry before he went to London to the new Park Street Chapel, later the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So this huge figure that uh, was a powerful preacher, prolific author, 135 books he wrote, uh, plus 63 volumes of sermons, which I think is the largest collection of words by any Christian author in the English language. He was uh, the most famous preacher in the world, and as someone described the uh, one of the most famous people in the world during his life he is considered to be uh, one of the greatest preachers since the apostle paul in post new testament times charles spurgeon was a country boy who loved the lord jesus christ who loved the word of god and courageously and boldly proclaimed the gospel he was a happy man he loved to laugh And yet Spurgeon went through many great trials in his life. He suffered with gout pretty early on. And the remedies and helps for gout were not as advanced then as they may be today. But those of you who do suffer with gout now, you know how painful that could be. It could essentially put someone in bed for a month during that time. It's like putting your arm in a vice and tightening it up and tightening it some more. The pain was so bad in the joints of the body and He suffered with kidney disease and other ailments. But he also suffered this happy, joyful, prolific, powerful preacher of a man. He suffered from depression, dark depression. He wrote to his uh, church. He was very honest with his church about this, and they loved him, and he loved them. He says, Dear friends, as you love me, pray for me specifically just now. 
Never did I need your prayers more. Could you meet with one another to plead with God for me that I might be direct, maybe directed and sustained? The times are evil and the trial for the man of God peculiar. I am not well, but it will soon pass off and I hope speedily to be in full work. I am what and where I have always been in testimony to the truth. We shall as a church and people have to bear our witness for the Lord and he will not fail us. Just one of the trials of his ministry that he was going through at that time. He battled through great controversies. The last one is he's battling for the authority and sufficiency of Scripture and with liberalism creeping in and the atonement of Christ and its biblical truth being questioned, the doctrine of hell being denied, and other such sorts of things. And it cost him a lot. It cost him emotionally. It cost him physically. Uh, his wife believed that uh, that last controversy was at least the human reason for his death at age 57. So I'll be 58 next uh, Friday. Put that on your calendar. Friday's my birthday. <laughs> and pray for me on my birthday. I'll be 58. Spurgeon died at 57, 57 and a half. In 1891, he describes his week and the strain that he felt during that week. He told his congregation that he broke down. He said, you will bear with me a little longer, and when I grow too old and feeble, you must find someone else. You've got to remember, Spurgeon was out of his pulpit about a third of the time throughout his ministry. And yet his church loved him, and they supported him. They walked with him through both his hard times and recognized that God was using him to minister to others. And, uh, but he was away probably for his health at least a third of the time, and no one ever even suggested, imagined, desired in any way another pastor who could be with them more. They knew God had called him to be their pastor. And yet at times he confessed to feeling weak and worthless. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The, the Spurgeon we know that we've read about, that such a man could feel worthless and weak and sadly bruised. I am no Spurgeon, but I have felt those very things many times in my life and my ministry, weak, worthless, and bruised. He said one time, there is no music in me now. There's a rift which lets out all the melody. He told his students at his college, one crushing stroke has sometimes laid the minister very low. He wrote, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I know not what I wept for. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, just overwhelmed with sadness, a sadness that you cannot point to a specific reason why you're sad. Tears that fall and not knowing specifically why those tears are falling, weeping uncontrollably. Susie, his wife, was also sick, she said, my own condition is such that I must have his help or faint and utterly fail. And I know that there are many in like stress of need who will seek the king's face with me. In the midst of their challenges, they, they leaned on Christ. Spurgeon wrote of his bodily pain and his mental depression. He said, of all the things in the world to be dreaded, despair is the chief. Let a man 
be abandoned to despair, and he is ready for all sorts of sins. When fear unnerves him, action is dangerous. But when despair has loosed his joints and paralyzed his conscience, the vultures hover around him waiting for their prey. So I think Spurgeon fell into seasons of despondency and despair for several reasons. He believed it was, it was just sort of a part of the way he was made. I believe he also his health contributed to it. All these various illnesses, the gout, the Bright's disease, the increasing weight that came along with those sorts of things. Spurgeon was never very athletic. He later looked back and regretted not being more athletic in his younger days. Even as a young man, he's locked up to books reading. He wanted to read, 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 and read some more. He's never very athletic, and as he got older, his, his, he gained a lot of weight. He had the very str- Another reason was the very stresses. He was constantly facing some sort of stress. I think we could point to at least five great controversies in his ministry, difficult controversies. Uh, there's a great book that deals with some of the controversies of Spurgeon. If you want to jot it down and read it, it's called The Forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray. It's a really good book. gives you some insight on some of the theological battles that Spurgeon was dealing with. Especially early in his ministry, the papers slandered him. They called him names. He was like a country bumpkin to the elite. They discounted his old-fashioned doctrine. They considered him too much of a showman in their view. He was very different from the sort of highbrow pastors that London was accustomed to in its large churches. Spurgeon spoke to the common man, and the common man heard him gladly. And they came, they walked, they found a way to the church week after week. And when the Metropolitan Tabernacle was built, it was built to seat about uh, a little over 5,000 people, but 6,000 people packed in each week and others outside who couldn't gain entrance to the church. Common people primarily even though he was friends with the prime ministers of England and they sought his counsel. It is said that even Queen Victoria wore disguise and snuck into the church to hear Spurgeon. Mark Twain heard Spurgeon. Great leaders in America came over. President Garfield came to hear Spurgeon. He was a famous preacher. But mostly it was just folks like me and you, regular folks, the lower to middle class of society, the shopkeepers, the clerks, the laborers who came to hear Charles Spurgeon. And so he ministered to this vast congregation. He had this global sort of ministry. And he did so at times through a broken heart. He ministered to his own people while his own heart was breaking. He was a pastor to a people who would be his own pastor. In many ways, it was his wife that uh, nurtured him and cared for him. So he had these stresses, controversy, slander, sick wife. After about 10 or 12 years of marriage, his wife was essentially an invalid for the rest of their marriage, homebound, requiring regular care. Spurgeon, though he was not home all the time, he saw to it that she had people around her who care for her. He had the responsibilities of his church. And the 60 institutions that were connected to his church. His larger ministry to the world. Loss of friendships as 
Folks departed from him as he stood strong for truth. And he died in part of a broken heart. Even with all the diseases, it was a broken heart that Susie believed pushed him over the edge, over the loss of students that he had poured his life into, training them in the faith. One of his tragedies, someone said, almost unseated his reason, after which he hid himself from the public, spent hours in tears by day and dreams of terror by night. And this deepened. That tragedy, the effects of it, I mentioned earlier, and he never fully recovered. He always quoted, often quoted in his sermons, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He said, There are dungeons beneath the castle of despair, as dreary as the abodes of the lost, and some of us have been in them. He was tempted and tried and pressed and stressed. Well, let's look at this verse. And the Bible says, No testing, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. This verse is set in the context of Israel's unfaithfulness. If you look at all of 1 Corinthians 10 there, you see that God led the people out of Egypt. He provided for them. He protected them. He cared for them. And yet, they grumbled against him. They turned to idolatry. They turned to immorality. They presumed upon God. They took lightly the provision and promises of God and thought God was sort of their genie in a bottle who would give them what they wanted when they wanted it. And so the Bible says that that God brought great suffering. Some were destroyed by the destroyer, uh, the Scripture says here in verse 2. Verse 11 said that what happened to Israel happened for our example. Our example. It was written now for our instruction. That we'll not go the way of Israel. We'll not turn away from God. That we'll not worship idols. You say, well, no one one here has a statue that we bow down to. But what about the idols of the heart? An idol is the thing that you dream of and that if you can't get it, it upsets you. It frustrates your plans. You, you cannot be content if I can't have this. And it can be anything. It can be success at your job. It can be a perfect house, well-mannered children, straight A's at school. It could be a car, a boat, a vacation, a second or third house. It can be, be being accepted and invited into some society. It can be anything. You think you're too spiritual to worship idols? You're not. As one great theologian said, our hearts are virtual idol factories. (laughs) Always creating idols that we'll bow down to. And that's what Israel did. Are you too smart not to fall into false religion? Are you too smart not to abandon the faith? We saw in the last few months a very uh, prominent person who had been a pastor of a very large church that held to similar doctrine that you hold to and i hold to joshua harris who essentially abandoned the christian faith and seems to be an apostate uh, praying that that fall is temporary that indeed he will repent but it seems that he's turned his back on the faith and paul is going to say if you think you stand take heed lest you fall do you think it's impossible that you will keep the faith 
Many in Christian history have abandoned the faith they once professed to believe. You look at the gross sins of Israel. You look at immorality, for example, and you say, that would never happen to me. Are you sure? Are you sure? Lots of godly people have fallen. Folks who seemed godly and in some cases were godly, but had had fallen away in their spiritual disciplines perhaps and had opened themselves up to various temptation and had yielded instead of taking God's pathway of escape during those times of testings. Are you stronger than they are? Are you stronger than King David? A man after God's heart who saw and took and murdered. You're better than that, right? You're better than idolatry. You're better than cheating on your taxes. You're, you're better than presuming upon God. You're better than compromising at work or home and relationships. You're better than that. You, that would never happen to you. You're, you're faithful. You're not perfect. No one's perfect. But you would never bow down to a false god. Whether it's something you dream about that if you can't get, it frustrates you. Or whether it's something that terrorizes you and you learn to fear man and what man can do to you rather than God himself. If you think it couldn't happen to you, then you're in great danger of a fall. Pride comes before destruction, the Bible says, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Think of Peter. Lord, everyone else may abandon you, but not me. I'm the rock. You can count on me. Short time later, three denials, the final one, with curses. I don't know the man. Is that you? What about the churches in Revelation who had a name of life, but they were dead? As one writer put it, Christians who become self-confident become less dependent on God's Word and God's Spirit and become careless in their living. And if you are a true Christian and you've become self-confident, less dependent on God's Word and God's Spirit, and you are truly a child of God, God will chasten you. He will remove props that you're leaning on, depending on, to teach you to treasure and look to Christ only. And so if you're, this writer says, you become self-confident, less dependent on God's Word and God's Spirit, you become careless in your living. And as carelessness increases, openness to temptation increases. And resistance to sin decreases. When we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is strongest, our doctrine the soundest, our morals the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent upon the Lord. Verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now Paul gives us this exhortation that we'll spend the remainder of our time in before looking at some application from Spurgeon's life. A verse that offers us a way to avoid sin when being severely tried. How to avoid sin and remain, remain faithful during times of great pressure. When we're being ground and we're being pressed and burdens, heavy burdens are being placed upon our backs and we feel as if we're about to break and we just can't take it anymore. How to, in the midst of the darkest of midnights, the most difficult of times, to look upward to our Lord and not give in to sin when we're being tested. The first thing we need to know then is we need to know something about ourselves, something about mankind in general. There are people here in this room 
from diverse backgrounds, different circumstances, various occupations. But the reality is wherever you've come from, large family, small family, rich family, poor family, wherever you've come from, whatever background you have, we all share one thing in common that begins with our father Adam who stood in the Garden of Eden as our representative, representing mankind, a real person, but representing you and representing me. You can think of Adam, if you will, as the tree of mankind. And all of mankind are in that tree. All of us, every one of us, are in that, we're in Adam's tree. And we're the branches of his tree, so to speak. And when Adam, representing us, doing exactly what we would have done had we been there, an exact representative of man when adam sinned the tree came down and we fell with him and you can take a dead christmas tree we, we like to go out and cut our own christmas tree at christmas time and i've heard of people that uh didn't we're not thinking very clearly they take their christmas tree after christmas that they had cut <laughs> and put in their uh base and after christmas plant it in the yard and expect it to grow well you that won't work <laughs> that won't work that's the way mankind is. We, we've fallen. And like the old commercial used to say, the lady who had fallen, she says, I've fallen and I, I can't get up. And Adam all fell, all have sinned, and all have come short of the glory of God. By nature, we're sinners. And we know that because we start making conscious choices to sin against God. Our choices reveal our nature, and we just pass it down generation to generation to generation to generation. Sin has come into the world, death through sin. Death is spread to all men. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Paradise has been lost. Death has spread like a disease. And the world has suffered the effects of our sin and has fallen. Even the world around us, even beautiful Texas, even the yellow rose of Texas, whatever that is, I'm not sure. I just heard it somewhere by a great theologian. <laughs> even the, the, the flowers of Texas are fallen. Everything is growing. Creation itself is groaning, awaiting redemption. And listen, here's good news for you. Sometimes we think of heaven as this, uh, this place where we just sort of float around in in. In as, as ghost but the bible says god is creating new heavens and a new earth and we will walk on the new earth we will live in the new heavens and and we will touch and taste and experience and see and feel it will be a material world as i told the ladies yesterday you know we're in georgia we like to brag on our peaches south carolina says they make more and yesterday they proved it in another way i guess but uh, for you football fans but I tell our congregation all the time that we enjoy a good Georgia peach in season. But we've really never tasted the fullness of a peach. But we will when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. And I think our first reaction when we bite into that luscious peach is going to be, <laughs> wow, it's going to be so stunning. Is all things are made new because the peaches in Georgia are fallen. Uh, they're, they're feeling the effects of our fall. Everything is touched. And as a result of the fall, that is why we have all the things connected to death. 
That's the reason you get sick. That's the reason you age. That's the reason that you, you know, you look at your, your uh, high school picture. If you've got a high school reunion coming up, you look at your graduation picture and, and you look at a picture of yourself now and you say, wow. <laughs> uh, or like the one person who said they went to their gra- high school graduation, they were really stunned at how old folks had become there while they had stayed the same. <laughs> this is why we grow older. This is why we ache and we pain. We have pains. This is why we suffer and we get sick and ultimately we die. By nature, sin is, our nature has fallen. We sin by choice and the effects of that have touched everything in life. So we have a, that in common with our worst enemy. As Christians, we have been given Christ and a new heart and a new life. But still we struggle, don't we, with remaining sin, this battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our sin has brought trouble into our lives. Look at relationships. How many people do you know that right now their families are broken? Their friendships, their former friendships, they're broken now. Churches are divided. People go to war with each other. People divide and are divisive and destructive. Look at our country. Look at our politics, divisiveness, destruction, disunity, disorder, chaos, sin, the love of might and power, trouble everywhere. We know as well that, that trouble in testings are the common lot of all people under the heading. We, know, we need to know something about mankind. We have a sin problem. Our sin has brought trouble. Trouble and testings are the common lot of every one of us in this room. No one is excluded. So you are not unique. That's important to know because sometimes when you go through testing, you imagine, and this is, a, this is a device of the enemy. When going through testing, the, the enemy will whisper in your ear and he will say, you are unique. No one has ever faced anything like this and therefore no one can really understand what you're going through. And then we start feeling sorry for ourselves. Uh, this, is, this is unlike anything I've ever heard of. This is unlike anyone's ever experienced. But, you know, even when, you know, as someone said, things aren't as they seem to be, things are as the Bible says they are. And the Bible says that there's no testing that has overtaken us, but that which is common to man. You are not unique in that regard. And I'm not unique. Sometimes I think so. I think that I can't imagine anyone facing some, whatever it is I may be facing at the time. So we recognize our problem by nature. Hopefully everyone in this room, I don't want to be presumptuous, but hopefully you've looked to Christ to deal with a sin problem, to give you a new heart, a heart after Christ, a heart after the Word of God. And you have a new heart within you, implanted by Christ, and you love for Him and love for His people, a changed life. And if not, I encourage you to run to the cross, run to Jesus, turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one you will face one day, either as your Savior or your judge. We are forgiven, those of us who are Christians, children of God, but guess what? We're still in a fight. The Bible says our fight is against the world, the world system, the philosophy of the world. It sucks us in. It sounds so good. It's so powerful. It's so persuasive. It sounds right. It sounds good. This is the way, the world says. The Corinthian church dealt with all sorts of worldly philosophies. We battle against the world, the flesh, that is, that remaining sin within us, that, that internal war that wages within us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, 
He's constantly fighting that sin. And the devil himself. The devil is not omnipotent. Uh, He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all the time. But the devil is at work in our world through his forces. And he stirs up trouble. He suggests doubts and questions. And the same way he tempted Eve, he tempts us. Ultimately trying to get us to deny that God is a truth teller. He wants us to believe that God is a liar. So we all have this in common. We're not unique. We all suffer. No temptation has overtaken you. What a relief to know that God has set limits on our temptation, on our testing. But people are tested. Car accidents, marriage, uh, miscarriages, the death of young, the death of old, depression, suicide, family problems, financial struggles, sickness, being mistreated by others. You fill in the blank. You are not unique. This is actually good news. You're not alone. You have a large family of fellow sufferers. We are not isolated, and we should not try to isolate ourselves. That is an unwise thing to do. We need community. We need the church. We need godly people around us, and we need to be with godly people. We have a large family. Some are carrying heavier loads than you. Some are carrying less loads than you. Sometimes the loads shift. Things change. Your circumstances improve. Your neighbor's circumstances go downward. But common means that which is human, that which belongs to mankind. These are our experiences, all of them. As one commentator said, knowing this will help us to confess our sins to one another and to bear one another's burdens. Do you know that you have a responsibility to bear the burdens of your fellow church members here? And you also have a responsibility to share their joys. That's what a family is to do. That, brother, you're not with us. We will help you. I will help you. I will help you through this. I'm your friend. I love you. We'll go through this together. I'll try to bear what I can. I will pray for you. I will encourage you. I will come to your aid. So temptation here, the word is a, is a broad word. The basic meaning is to test or to prove. It isn't a negative word in itself. Sometimes we think of temptation, we think immediately of temptation to sin. But the word itself simply means testing. Testing. To test, to prove. It's, uh, it's our response to the testing that's really the question. We can either respond by being faithful or we can yield to sin. And so our testing can be, become in our hearts a temptation to sin against the Lord. The Lord intends good from our testing, like Joseph. Others may intend evil from our testing. You look at the life of Job and God was going to work good there. Satan had evil purposes towards Job. Yet even when the temptation is a seduction to do wrong, even in the midst of the trial, you're, you're then being seduced or tempted to do that which is wrong, you have to know that neither the temptation nor the tempter has ultimate control, that God is faithful. Uh, and I, I said this yesterday to the ladies as well. Martin Luther said the devil is God's devil. Now, that may shock you a little bit when you first hear that, but think about what he's saying. He's not saying that, that God is the author of evil. 
that God is the great encourager of the devil, but the devil is on a leash. The devil can go no further than allowed by God, as we see in the book of Job, for example. It is God who is sovereign, not the devil. It is God who is in control, not the devil. It is God who is in control, not our circumstances, not our trials, not our difficulties. So all of these things, the storms of life, the hurricanes, the challenges are on a leash. On a leash. You remember Satan presenting himself to God with the holy angels in Job. He was described by Christopher Ashe, an English preacher and commentator as sort of being like the opposition party in British government, Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Ash says they, the, they oppose the government, but they do so in ultimate and unquestioned subservience to the crown. Their goal is to bring the government down in their spirit of opposition, but they end up serving the purposes of the government. So what a comfort that right now, even if we are facing a frontal attack by Satan himself, He is God's devil in that regard. And his attack will only work God's purposes in and through us. Think about Jesus led into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. Displaying his faithfulness and his righteousness. The devil is seeking to get Jesus to sin just like the devil was seeking to get Job to sin. Think of all that comes into your life, all the challenging things. They're tests that come to strengthen you to to cause you to look upward to christ and cast your dependency upon him it may be like paul a thorn in the flesh that's 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 aggravating and painful and difficult and just drives you over and over to the lord and say lord remove this thorn from me but it may be the lord's plan to teach you that his grace is sufficient in your weakness that he's strong Jesus prayed, Lord, remove this cup if possible. But it was God's intention and Jesus' commitment to do the will of the Father to go to the cross. I think the idea in context is that we suffer. We, we may be vulnerable to making bad choices, and I think that's right. So when you go through a hard pressing, a deep trial, a dark season of your life, it is during those testings that, that God is trying to work righteously. God is working good in you. But you may be more vulnerable to guilt and temptation when you're tested, when you're tired, when you're weary, when you're heavy laden. Temptation will come and try to seduce you away from the Lord. Maybe we try to, maybe we choose revenge to someone who's wronged us. Maybe we try to escape through drugs or alcohol. How many? Professing Christians have done that. In the midst of a great trial, they've turned to alcohol or drugs to try to numb the pain. Or maybe we fall into an illicit relationship as a means of escape from our trial. Maybe we run up the credit cards. We try to spend our way to soothe our hurting heart through buying stuff. Maybe we fall out of church so we won't have to hear a sermon like this. Maybe like the young pastor we read about a few weeks ago who sinfully chose to commit suicide. Or Rachel and Leah in, a, in the Old Testament, the race to win regarding children. <laughs> Whatever it takes, no holds barred. So we need to know something about ourselves, but most importantly, secondly, we need to know something about God. One of the best things that you can do for your spiritual life is to know the character of God. To go through the Bible and study what the Bible says about God himself, who he is. In the beginning, God created. Right off the bat, he's the creator. 
He's the creator of all things. He made me. Therefore, the creator of all things, to him belongs loyalty and honor and obedience and submission. And my life finds meaning only in submission to the creator of all things, the one who made me. I am the, he's the potter, I'm the clay. How foolish it is for the clay to look at the potter and say, why'd you do this? You know, it's not, just, it's not confident in and of itself that God is the creator and he's, all, he's the all-powerful creator, but we know the full character of God. We say that God who has created us, God who has made us, God who sent his son to die for us on Calvary's cross is a God who is kind and gracious in his holiness. Then that's comforting to know that he has made us in his own image for his own glory, knowing of our sin, knowing of our rebellion, dying for us when we're yet enemies with God, laying down his own life on Calvary's cross. We need to know something about God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Have you ever read a good book on the character of God? Have you ever read Knowing God by J.I. Packer? Just the standard basic book every Christian ought to read, Knowing God. Have you ever read The Existence and Attributes of God by Sharnock? You probably want to get an abridged version, <laughs> unless you've got a lot of time on your hands. But... Uh, 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 R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. And he's also got a book on the attributes of God. I forget the name of that. Uh, A.W. Tozer's got a book on that. Lots of, lots of good authors have books on the character of God, knowing the character of God. So the key to not sinning is to know about God. Look at how God led Israel. They were in bondage. He led them out. By the cloud, by the fire, in the sea eating spiritual food, they're, they're drinking spiritual drink. Christ himself is with them. And yet most of them were overthrown for their turning to idolatry and sin. But know that God is faithful like that. God led rebellious Israel, complaining Israel. God is faithful to us. So the key to not sinning when tried, is to really know God. The Bible says we know God through Christ. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the, the way to the Father is the Son, and the way to know the Father is, is through the Son. So there's no way to know God in His fullness without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who then, the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes to the pages of Scripture so we can see the greatness and the glory and the majesty of Almighty God. And we, we bow down before Him as King of all kings and Lord of our lords, all lords. We should know that God does not tempt us to do evil. That's one thing we should know about him. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, and here the word temptation is used, tempted to do wrong. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, give birth, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. So we will face trials of all sorts, sickness, finances, deaths, wrong treatment, fill in the blank. And we will be tempted at times to sin in the midst of those trials. But remember this, that the temptation to sin is not God tempting you. It is not. It is 
the work of the enemy. It is the desires of your flesh. It is falling captive to the philosophies of this world. But it is not God. We, we also see in Scripture that God wants to reward us for faithfulness. We see that in 1 Corinthians, just as a note there. That most of our temptations we see from the passage in James come primarily from within, a desire to flank God. A desire to take your own solution to the problem and not look to God. How many people, first thing when they have a problem, they look everywhere but God and His Word and biblical wisdom. We need to look to God. I don't care what the problem is. That's where we start. Now, God may have provided all sorts of means for our help, and He has. But we look to God, Lord, I'm in trouble here. Uh, you know, I've been diagnosed with some physical problem, and and I'm going to need help, and I know you've provided doctors and wisdom and medical profession and all of that. But, Lord, I look to you. I know that I'll go to the doctors. I'll take advantage of the, the, the common grace that you've displayed. But help comes from the Lord. And you seek God first. We need to look unto the Lord. Not take matters into our own hands, but go to the Lord. Not try to drown our troubles in our beer to relieve our pressures in an immoral relationship, to soothe our pain by harming ourselves or seeking to just get out of this world. We need to know that God is faithful. God wants us to trust Him through the, the severest of trials that we're facing. It's hard in trial, I know. Sometimes a person carrying heavy burdens, it, it changes them. It sobers them. Sometimes it's evident in the lines on their faces, in their demeanor as they're seeking to be faithful there's still this effect of it lit, it literally has a similar effect to if as if you were carrying a heavy burden a physical a, a real weight on your back trials can do that it can break us down physically it's hard but we have to keep looking godward to the faithfulness of god it's not our faithfulness that we're depending on here it is god's faithfulness we're trusting him and walking in the faithfulness of the Lord Himself. Trials are not sin. Uh, and necessarily, sometimes our trials are a result of a specific sin, but not always. Trials are just part and parcel of living in a fallen world. Sometimes our trials are a result of a specific sin, but not always. Sometimes God is going to glorify His name through the boy who was born blind, we see in Scripture. It wasn't because he sinned, it was because his parents sinned. Not because of some specific sin, but God was going to display his glory somehow through that trial. God is faithful. But with the temptation, he will provide for us a means of escape. So bearing up is beyond our ability, but God provides a means of escape. So we can't blame the devil when we sin. Well, the devil made me do it. We can't say that I was so overwhelmed, Lord, I just couldn't help but sin. No. We can't say I had to take a wrong path. There was no other way. No. If we say that, we're saying the temptation is stronger than God himself. But God has provided. We always choose to sin when we sin. It's not anyone's fault. Not anyone's fault. You're not a victim. You choose to sin. Strength is available to you. And what God typically is going to do here is not usually going to remove. He may do that, remove the temptation. I think the, the passage seems to indicate God will walk you through, see you through the valley of the shadow of death. And as Susanna Spurgeon said, he will either relieve you or release you. 
And I think maybe she was talking about he may relieve you of the burden if you get through it. There's light on the other side. These momentary afflictions, they have a time expiration date on them. They're not going to last forever. And they will likely, you'll go through these temptations. Many times you'll be relieved on the earth. Or you'll be released to heaven to be with Christ. So the way of escape is through the word of God. Jesus relied on scripture when he was tested. The spirit of God the, the Spirit of God ministered to Christ. We depend on the Spirit through prayer, crying out to God, looking Godward. God is faithful, not allowing us to be uh, tempted. He told his disciples, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Believe that God will help us, hear us, answer us. Remember, we have a sympathetic high priest. Let me take my last four minutes here and uh, throw out a, just a couple of points of application from Charles Spurgeon's life as we think about this passage in his life one uh, god gave him the ability to laugh one of his best friends described him as a bubbling fountain of humor so i don't want to leave you to leave here thinking that spurgeon was this dark figure he was not as martin lloyd jones uh, says in his book uh, that the joyful christian is a great witness to the world and spurgeon believed that and he, he pursued joy as piper says you got to fight for joy fight for joy god gave him godly support in his wife God gave him help in his wife. I think Charles would have fallen into great, greater despair had he not had a godly woman at his side. And you may be called to a life of singleness. That means that God has friends that will come alongside of you. Just look for them, trust him, ask him who will help support you through these trials. And they stuck together. They did not divide. They did not turn against one another or against the Lord. They looked to each other. Spurgeon used his trials to help others. He, he bent his own grief and his own comfort that he received to comfort others. He had strong faith. He expected God to be true to his promises. Do you trust God's word? He says, never were the promises of God so precious to me as at this hour. And he wrote that during a time of great tribulation. He said, my brethren, God is good. He will not forsake you. He will bear you through. This man who suffered so much encouraged others. God will bear you through. He depended on the Holy Spirit. He says, I know that without His divine power, all that I can say will be of no avail. But under His quickening influence, even the humblest testimony will confirm feeble knees and strengthen weak hands. God is glorified when His servants trust Him implicitly. Lord, I don't understand this. I can't figure this out. This feels like it is killing me. Sometimes I cannot see you. Where are you, oh Lord? I don't know, Lord, but I trust you. I trust you. He was not content with his depression. He considered it to be the worst of his sufferings, and he fought it. He said it usually carries with it a sense of loss, the loss of God's presence, so he fought it with faith. He cherished big thoughts about God, Susie Spurgeon wrote, In times of trouble, the soul is greatly helped by cherishing great thoughts about God. And the devil will whisper in your ear, Hath God really said? And then he will say to you, Thou shalt not surely die. It looks good. It smells good. It sounds good. Take it, brother. Take it, sister. It'll be good for you. God's holding you back. No, when you're tested, it is then that you must nurture and cultivate and cherish great thoughts about the high King of heaven and sing the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. 
Oh, Lord, my God. Spurgeon encouraged rest. He says, no, no person is designed to go on and on and on and on without rest. Some of you businessmen may need to hear that, or business ladies. Your life is just on and on and on and on and on and on, and you never hit the pause button. He said, the bow is not meant to be always strong. You must unstring the bow. That's true for all of us, pastors and non, everyone else as well. He saw God's mercy coming with his sorrows. He says, we have suffered and we can testify. There's a point where suffering and pain are the vestibule of bliss. When they bring men as near to Jesus as they carried us, they are not angels in disguise, but seraphs all unveiled. And he didn't stop looking heavenward for help. Brothers and sisters, no testing has overtaken you except that which is common to man. You've just heard the doctor's report. You just got the phone call. You just got laid off at work. You just felt this strange pain. Your spouse just walked away from you. Your children rebelled against you and against God. You failed in some way. But even then, God is still faithful. When we're faithless, God is faithful. And with every testing comes God's means of escape. And what we're to do is to look for that through prayer and through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit and through treasuring great thoughts of God and fighting the fight of faith against the world, the flesh, and the devil. His mercy is enough. His grace is sufficient. His covenant love will never abandon you. Hold on to the one who's holding on to you. Look up to the one who looks down and is considering and cares for you. And trust him. Lord, thank you for the word of God. May your people be comforted, encouraged, and strengthened. I pray that for myself and for all who hear this message. In Jesus' name, amen.